0: If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, and I'm here again with my co-host, Alex Wilhelm of CrunchBase News. Hi, Alex. What's up?
0: Uh, things are good. I'm on the East Coast. It is sunny outside. My dogs are adorable and in need of a haircut. And we're going to go for a walk later on. So I feel domesticated and delightful.
1: That's nice. It's actually very sunny here, too, for a change. I'm really enjoying that.
0: I miss San Francisco, so I hope it'll stay nice until I land on Sunday, like noon, I think. So just a little bit longer SF. If you could do me the solid, I'm almost back.
1: We'll see. Um, So another busy week for us. But uh, I have to be honest, I was pretty heads down in a longer story. So I wasn't really um, on top of the news cycle quite as much as I normally am, though I'm sure you were following all the big developments closely.
0: I was trying to, but there's so much going on. I, I can never actually tell if I'm getting all of it at once or just kind of a fraction of it. Um, I, we have a notes doc. We have an agenda. We have stuff to go through. I hope this is the right stuff. There's just, I don't know. It's VC in 2019, Kate. It's hard to get all of it into one place. So let's do go, let's go for it.
1: Um, so I wanted to start with asking you if you read the story in Fortune magazine about Kleiner Perkins.
0: This was the one with the the three-color uh, artwork about the the kind of shake-up at Kleiner over time. The downfall, what, what was the word they used, like the struggle or something?
1: It was a fallen empire, I believe go. they said, uh, uh, how the Kleiner empire fell. So as you might imagine from that headline, and like you just said, you read it. Uh, it, was a, it was not so much a takedown, but basically just a story that brought together all which has been reported and some inside scoops on how Kleiner Perkins kind of went from this top tier venture capital firm that entrepreneurs from all over the world uh, you know, really desire to have on their cap table and sort of became this company that really has floundered since a lot of their top investors have uh, left and started their own venture capital funds.
0: Yeah, I think when you name a venture capital fund after people, uh, you're making a point about who is behind it. And the, the name loses some luster if people change out and they're not replaced with people of similar caliber. Now, that's not to say that the new Kleiner crew won't uh, live up to their uh, predecessors. They may. We'll, we'll know in a couple of years when the returns are kind of uh, beginning to bake, but it, it's a dramatic shift. And I thought the story did a good job laying out what had gone well and what had not at the, at the firm over the last, oh gosh, Kate, 10 years, give or take.
1: Right, and I don't want to go down too deep in this rabbit hole, but I will say I think talking about generational transition at venture capital firms is one of my favorite things to talk about because I'm a venture capital nerd. But they just did a really terrible job of that, and a lot of a lot of these really amazing firms have really suffered and struggled uh, when it comes to generational transition. And uh, you know, this leads me into the first story that I want to talk about. But um, I think. Kleiner has just not done a great job in holding on to their best investors uh well, one wait of those minute, being Kate.
0: That's not well, should they change over generations faster or should they hold on to their famous investors from before I feel like you kind of said that right. both ways which way do you think they should go right.
1: Okay so there are two issues I think there's one of them is is um you know uh, boosting your best investors and you know allowing them to perhaps become the face of the firm and then there's another issue which is generational transition which is bringing in young blood um or you know not necessarily young people, but fresh perspectives and uh, promoting them within the firm to lead it toward a new era of investing. And I think, frankly, in this case, Kleiner didn't do a good job of either one. Okay, What do you think? I mean, I'm
0: always torn about this because I'm in favor of faster turnover in people and I, I'm opposed to people being stuck at the top past their, their, their key years. But at the same time, I think, again, it's a firm named after people. So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out how you could possibly reinvent the brand, but, uh, Kate, you've met the new Kleiner crew, which is, uh, Mamoun, Hamid, uh, Ilya Fushman, any case, Monica Desai, and a couple of other people. I mean, they, they seem cool. You know, I, I'm optimistic. I just, it's weird to have it be called Kleiner and not have you know those people that are in the four part name still there. but
1: uh, right. I think it's I think the new additions aren't to blame for the fact that Kleiner um isn't hasn't found its footing, uh, you know now that it's again, sort of transition a bit also to focusing on earlier yeah. stage investing after after Mary Meeker spun out the growth fund and I mean, they had really no choice but to kind of put an emphasis on those uh, you know series A stage um, deals.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Mary Meeker side of this equation, because this has been something that you and I have been talking about a little bit. So Mary Meeker, well, for people who don't know, let's start there. Who is Mary Meeker?
1: So Mary Meeker got her start um, on Wall Street. She was a tech analyst. She was the author of the Internet Trends Report. Um, she was well known in Silicon Valley, despite you know being a, a Wall Street icon and not a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. And Kleiner actually tried for a number of years to get her to come try her hand at, venture investing. And, and I sh- you know, what, from what I've read, and I think this was in the Fortune story, she wanted to do that for a while, but kind of just waited for the right time. Eventually, she did join you know, Kleiner as a general partner, and she very rapidly made a name for herself as a venture capitalist. Um, you know, she got, got in in a number of the biggest deals that the firm has seen, including uh, companies like Airbnb, um, and was one of the first women to uh, really rise through the ranks of venture capital um, in, in the area.
0: Yeah. And the internet trends report that she would do is, was a collection of, oh my gosh, a couple of hundred slides, I feel. And she would blast through these. And it was a look at like all sorts of things that were changing in the world and how fast. And so if you wanted to be in the know, you had to to read this thing, which meant you had to spend like a couple hours going through it. Uh, but I don't know of anyone else who has that kind of mind share in and among the, the Silicon Valley world that I think Kate, you and I both bounce around in. I mean, it was, it was intense and impressive. And now she is uh, no longer with Kleiner and she's off doing something on her own, right?
1: Right. So that was a really long-winded introduction to this main story, which is just that, you know, Mary Maker spun out the growth practice of Kleiner Perkins uh, and created her own fund with that same team called Bond or Bond Capital. Um, And they've just... uh, They've they have $1.25 billion in committed capital. So they've they've raised their debut fund. Sources told me they, they have not yet actually deployed any of that capital. You know, Maker has stakes in companies like Slack and more recently like Plaid and Fat Fit Fund, but that's all through Kleiner because she's actually not done investing out of Kleiner's fund. Um, you know, it seems like it seems like when you'd leave a firm, like you'd cut ties, but really it's not how it works if you're a general partner in a venture capital fund. You have commitments to your limited partners to actually invest all of the capital. So Maker is actually still working to spend money. So basically, (laughs) she has just an absurd amount of money that she needs to spend um, and invest in startups. And I'm curious. I don't know the answer to this question, but I am very curious how she's deciding which companies to invest in out of Kleiner and which companies to invest in out of Bond. Or if she's just going to first focus exclusively on that Kleiner money and spend it before she really moves on to focusing on Bond's money.
0: Yeah. Talk about a, a rich person problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. just fly, that, that's a hashtag first world concern. Uh, but what matters to me is, uh, looking a bit to the future, I suppose, is that her new fund is actually bigger than the three funds she was associated with when she was at Kleiner. Because she was with the Kleiner growth stage Funds, which I think came in at a billion dollars, $750 million, and then a billion dollars. And her new fund, Kate, if I have my my notes right, is $1.25 So when she's done with the Kleiner tenure, if you will, she will have her biggest ever um, asset pool to deploy, which is, I mean, exciting and also very 2019 at the same time.
1: Is this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the first fund larger than $1 billion that was uh, founded and led by a woman investor or?
0: If there's another one, I cannot name it. So okay. I think, see, this is why we need like our own in-house research staff, because we have to do all of our notes ourselves. <laughs> if only we had an intern. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I, I do think this is the largest fund raised by a woman in, in history, but I, I'm loath to be certain about that in case there is one that I've missed.
1: Well, I would agree. As far as I know, it's it's the largest ever, uh, which is an uh, amazing development. It's it's surprised. It's sad in a way that that hasn't happened already, but it's also yes. amazing that Mary Meeker is doing this, and you know she is the person who would be the one to cross the, this barrier. Yeah, can I can yeah.
0: I can, uh, I, can I back up for a second? I, I want to touch back on the Kleiner thing a little bit. In a sense, this this kind of all makes sense to me. Kleiner needed to get new blood and new faces in and have a new fund. And also, Mary Meeker wanted to do her own thing. So in a sense, like Kleiner got a new $600 million fund. They had new names and faces over there. Mary Meeker gets to do her thing. It strikes me as a relatively almost reasonable situation. Uh, I know it's going to get a lot of negative press, but that's my, my rough read from this perspective.
1: Well, I think there's two ways of looking at it. And I think the way that you're looking at it is probably the way that Kleiner wants people to look at it. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm just saying like you can either assume that they very peacefully cut ties because strategically that was the best route, or you can also look at it in a way, um, you know, in in the, perspective that's uh, brought forward in the Fortune piece, which was that there was a a power struggle of sorts between that new blood and between Meeker, who was, quote unquote, the sheriff in town, and then they brought in a new sheriff, and then it was like there were two sheriffs, and who's the real sheriff? Right.
0: That's what I was trying to say. It's better to have two sheriffs in different towns than to have two sheriffs in one conjoined town. So to me, it's a reasonable setup uh, moving forward. But uh, we should move on, I think, and talk about some other stuff. And uh, Kate, can I talk about my favorite thing in the world, which is uh, China-based IPOs? go for it okay uh i promised <laughs> to be brief on this this week because i know everyone out there doesn't care as much about these as i do hey everyone don't forget this episode is brought to you by shares post but really briefly there's two things out there uh this week that i want to hit on so one is Luckin coffee now kate have you heard of Luckin uh before this show
1: I, yes, I've heard of it, but I don't know whether it's a brick and mortar coffee chain or if it's like, you know, selling coffee direct to consumer. So please inform me. Uh,
0: So it is a brick and mortar chain has a strong IRL component. It also has a strong delivery component and it's targeting kind of the Starbucks-ish market in China in the coffee world. So higher end, but not quite as expensive, if that makes sense. And the reason why we care about Luckin Coffee is that it's raised hundreds of millions of dollars very, very, very quickly. And that means it's been investing that money. Uh, in a way that we now get to see because it's filed to go public. And mm-hmm. it's rare that we get to see a company's f- financials when they're this young. Usually they grow into their burn over time, but in Luckin's case, not really. And so I just want to talk a little bit about some numbers here because you know, I can't help myself. But with $550 million in raised capital to date, um, they had $71.3 uh, million in revenue in the first quarter of this year. Okay, so pretty big okay. number. They're not that old. They're only a couple of years old. So that's a lot of revenue for one quarter. Uh, but they had an operating loss of $78.5 million in the quarter and a net loss of 82.2. So they have a net margin of, of well above negative 100% on a gap basis. And so I think that kind of goes to show these unicorns, when they're raising these astronomical sums at a pretty rapid pace. I mean, Luckin just raised 150 million more, like a couple of weeks ago, I think. Uh, they're really burning at a, at a simply incandescent rate. Uh, and maybe this will all turn out fine. The company's put up insane growth numbers, but also it, it shows, I think, the scale of the bet that's being taken. And I'm always a little bit surprised when a company can end up being uh, more than negative 100% on a net basis, even when they're growing. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that story. Um, the F1 is really interesting and at a minimum, we can all agree that coffee is kind of a universal thing. So – well, actually, not, not Kate. Kate, you got in trouble about coffee this week on Twitter, I think.
1: Uh, yes, I, I uh, made the bold claim on Twitter that I hated Phil's coffee more than Starbucks coffee.
0: And were you run through the streets and uh, treated like a heretic?
1: Apparently that's not a popular opinion, I guess, because San Francisco is uh, home to the Phil's coffee chain, but yes. Seattle is home to Starbucks and I'm a Seattleite. So sorry, guys, just being honest.
0: I mean, the, the real answer is Pete's, but, or Revae, if you're in San Francisco, but yeah, don't, don't pick a fight with Phil's. Um, but at least Phil's probably doesn't have a negative 115% gap margin. Whatever well, the hell is.
1: I, well, I have a question for you. Yeah. So I know you, you wrote, you wrote a piece about why, uh, was it Beyond Meat? Like why Beyond Meat? Uh, was going to be covered by Crunchbase because it's not necessarily a tech company. Yeah. Um. But I. But I wonder the same about Luckin Coffee and actually about Fills because Fills is also, or was also VC backed for. Um. I'm not sure if they still are or not. But is it a tech company or what about Luckin Coffee makes it? Uh, you know, something that you, you want to be talking about on this podcast. Yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's a really good point. And something we think about a lot because it's the, the umbrella of what counts as tech has certainly grown and not yeah. everything is a software company or a 3D printing laser delivery company. Uh, yeah. Dial the time back to Blue Apron. When Blue Apron was going public, everyone treated it like a, a tech IPO. In reality, it really wasn't. It was priced like a tech company and the market corrected that and began to price it as a grocery store. Uh, on a revenue multiple basis. And that was, I think, an important lesson for everybody. The the reason why Luckin fits, and the reason why I bring it up on this show is there's a couple small reasons. One, it is incredibly venture-backed and high growth. So in terms of the private company growing quickly at high expense, it fits that matrix of things we care about. But also because it has a strong mobile delivery component, there is a tech story to it. I don't think that every company that raises a lot of money to burn, to grow quickly counts. But I do think companies that do that and have a tech component probably fit our remit. They're probably falling under what we should talk about. Um, But I'm always open to being wrong about that. And if we end up uh, going too far afield, people can just send us an email and tell us because I think we'll be receptive to that. But I think Luckin... Fits the high growth China venture model we've been talking about for like what, you know, 12 months now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Okay. So there's one more Chinese IPO that you wanted to talk about. Which one's that?
0: Yeah. It's called, um, Duyo, I, I'd say, D U O Y O in, uh, in English. So we call it Duyo, uh, for today. And just like with Luckin, I wanted to highlight the, the pace of losses. I want to highlight how young this company is from a different financial angle. Um, so when it's F1 dropped, I pulled up the income statement, Kate, as I'm sure that's what you do first when you pull up an F1. You don't read those like a thousand paragraphs the top talking about how cool the company is. Mm, definitely not. And I, I don't think I've ever read those actually for any company ever. Um, stop writing them, people. <laughs> we just scroll to the income statement first. That's all we do. Uh, so here's an interesting fact. Uh, this company, by the way, works in the online streaming world as a big esports component, competes a bit with Twitch and I believe uh, also with Hawaii, which went public last year to a pretty good result. It had a negative gross profit in all of 2016 and all of 2017, and only began to generate gross profit in 2018. Uh, And for people out there who are less uh, up on what that means, it means that just paying for its revenue itself cost more money than the revenue brought in, which meant it had no money to pay for its operating expenses like sales and marketing, R&D, general administrative, and other costs. So this company was shockingly unprofitable for a long period of time and only generated uh, I think it's just $22 million in gross profit off of $531 million in revenue in 2018. So what does all that mean? Sorry for so many numbers and thoughts. It means that this company is going public while it's still very much a risk. And we talk a lot on this show over the last couple of years about how many unicorns and decacorns are going public after all the value has been captured by the private markets. Here, we're seeing a company go public when that's not the case. It's still very young. It's still very unproven. It's growing really quickly, you know, 100%, more than 100% a year for the last couple of years, but it's, uh, it's, it's a risk. So people can now bet on this as they want to, but that struck me as an interesting component uh, of a China-based company going public here while still quite young.
1: Yeah. So why do you think they are going public and as opposed to not just raising into the run of private capital?
0: Do you think there's as much money available in China now as there was in October of last year? My guess is no.
1: Yeah, sure. But there's probably still you know there's still so much capital. And it's not like ca- Chinese venture capital deals have slowed down quite to the extent that this company couldn't go out and fundraise from, from private market investors. Well, it just seems to me that they're going to have, based off what you've just told me, and again, I, this is not something that I followed uh, prior to you know scripting today, but it seems like they're going to have a pretty unsuccessful IPO if they're at this point and they're just not, it's this high of a risk for uh, Wall Street investors who are obviously a lot more um, risk averse than Venture capitalists.
0: Okay, so I'm going to be vaguely controversial here and say that I would be more willing to put my money behind this company than Uber because this company is still growing like hell, and Uber lost a billion dollars in Q4 of last year, while not really growing from Q3. So this strikes me more as of a venture bet. You know, this is a company that's still in growth mode, and that can be really attractive. I mean, people are still looking for growth, but you know, okay, the market will do whatever it does. But I don't think this company shouldn't go public. I just think it's a very interesting company that is, and I'm, I'm going to be really excited to watch what happens uh, when it goes out, presuming that it does.
1: Okay, gotcha. If you didn't have to invest in either company, would you, I mean, are either of them particularly good bets?
0: But I'm so conservative. I just put all my money into low-cost index funds. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, this is why I'm not a VC, right? I'd be a terrible VC because I am an inherently risk-averse person. Um Anyways, the F1's out there. If you want it, uh, we'll put a link to it in the uh, show post on TechCrunch.com. So feel free to take a peek. We are keeping track of all these. And uh, let's turn to the domestic world. So today is Thursday, Kate. And tomorrow is going to be a very busy day. So what is going on in the great world of Slack?
1: Yeah, so uh, Slack is reportedly expected to filing tomorrow. T- will give us all the details that we've been looking for on its direct listing. So just want to take a second, as I like to do whenever we talk about Slack, to remind everyone what a direct listing is, because I know I personally like to refresh that a few times a month. But yeah, so Slack is expected to not complete a traditional IPO. Instead, it's just going to issue existing shares held by insiders, employees, and uh, existing investors directly to the market, as opposed to issuing a whole bunch of new shares like Uber and Lyft will be doing or have done. Um, In doing this, they don't have to have a roadshow. They can also avoid a really good amount of these really astronomical fees associated with going public. So it's a really nice way for companies that are already really well-known, like Spotify, which did it, and like Slack, and who already have a lot of money on their balance sheet and who don't need to raise several hundred million dollars or more in a really big IPO.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about this. I feel like you and I don't have enough uh, examples that have happened aside from Spotify to really know, how well direct listings perform. So uh, it's going to be super cool to watch. Uh, but there were also some notes out around this week about um, how big it is, Kate. I think uh, the journal said it was a revenue point of about $500 million on an annual basis in the first quarter. So does that kind of match what you expected to happen uh, in terms of how big Slack has become?
1: Uh, yeah, it does match what I was expecting. Does it match what you were expecting?
0: No. Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't <laughs> actually mean to segue to myself there, but I just did. That was... Accidentally <laughs> affectionate. Uh, the reason why we're laughing is I had made a prediction in September <laughs> that Slack will be about a 450 million ARR pace in Q1. I was wrong. Uh, apparently by about 50 million. But we'll know really soon. And I'm more excited about this, I think, than I was for the Uber S1. So, I, yeah. Really?
1: Hmm, Yeah. Well, that's fair, actually, because I feel like we had a pretty good idea of what was going to come from the Uber S1. And also just to be completely fair, I had no idea what uh, Slack's ARR pace was going to be. I just knew that you were wrong. So I wanted to rub that in a little bit.
0: (laughs) This is the problem with having fun in the mornings when you have like a couple of data points and you try to draw a line to the future, which I do more often than I should, uh, because people can just look it up when the numbers actually come out (laughs) and you can look really dumb. Uh, Anyways, uh, one last thing, Kate, is uh, Slack is still not making money, I think is the expectation. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, Slack is not profitable. I mean, I guess, we, you know, we, we talked about this before we recorded. I thought, um, and we haven't seen the financials yet, but I I kind of assumed Slack was, you know, very close to profitability. So, I'm really curious to see um, how spot on, you know, my, um, my estimations are. But uh, like all the other tech unicorns, um, Aside from uh, Zoom, which went public at, uh, as a profitable company, uh, you know Slack's not profitable. So are we surprised? No. I mean, none of these companies are. But again, it'll be interesting to see just how close it is to achieving profitability and if it has a clear-cut pr- path toward profitability or yep,
0: not. I totally agree. I'm excited about it. And we will most likely be back tomorrow afternoon, knock on wood, that we can get everything lined up uh, to talk a little bit about the Slack uh, filing and also to maybe, if it's done in time, talk about the Uber uh, price range setting, which uh, right before we started record today seemed to be set for tomorrow. And Bloomberg reported right when we were getting the uh, script together for today that Uber is planning to start marketing, quote, shares in a price range of 44 to $50 each. And they estimate that puts the value of Uber at 80 to $90 billion. I would bet you $1 that Uber is setting a relatively low range in hopes of raising it because That seems to be under their expectations. Um, Kate, do you want to lay a wager publicly on the air as well?
1: Yeah, I guess I will, even though I know I, I should stop doing this. But you're right, I think Lyft did the same thing where they were sort of um pricing modestly and ended up pricing you know at $74 per share right before they actually went the or you know, the at time of IPO, it was $74 per share. Uh, I think it was 72. Okay, okay. So yeah, point being, I think Uber will sort of follow the same thing. And as as you said, there's been some reports out today that Uber is going to uh, set the terms of their IPO tomorrow. And as, as we saw um, Dan Premack noted on Twitter... Um, he thinks that they're setting terms Friday so that investors can go into the weekend thinking that this IPO is already oversubscribed and can like shake in their boots all weekend long. <laughs> Sad. That they, they may have not, you know, already found their spot in the IPO.
0: I just imagine now all these iBankers and uh, people with client-facing jobs shaking in their boots. Do they wear boots? Is that a thing? I don't know.
1: I mean, they might.
0: They they could, they can probably afford to buy boots if they're buying Uber shares at the IPO price. Now, uh, one more thing to throw in for everyone's knowledge. I went ahead and looked up Lyft's impending earnings date, and that is looking like May 7th. So Uber probably wants to get out before then to control its own narrative. Because what if Lyft has a bad earnings report? You don't want to go public right after that. So I'm kind of guessing okay, yeah. it's before the 7th.
1: Yeah, you're right. I have that marked in my calendar, Lyft earnings, and that's a Tuesday. <laughs> So it's, sorry, I, just, that's a I love what
0: dorks we are. You said earlier on the show that you really care about intergenerational change in venture capital firms and I was dying. Oh, I love this show. All right. Sorry. I keep going.
1: I hope our listeners appreciate that. So yeah, it's, it's a Tuesday. Um, so you're right that, gosh, I keep, I keep thinking the Uber IPO is so far away. And then I look at my calendar and I realize that next week is the beginning of May. Yeah. So, you know, if they're going to really, if they do plan on listing before, before Lyft publishes their um, first earnings, uh. They they have they have to go out next week, and that just gives me anxiety about the amount of work I have to do in covering Uber's IPO. Don't MBA.
0: just don't think about it. Just there's there's no way around it. Just ignore it. It'll happen anyways. It'll be chaotic and it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, there may be extra equity episodes as that stuff breaks down because gosh knows we love to talk about uh, the biggest news when it happens. So, okay, do you want to wrap up and uh, leave everyone hanging for tomorrow?
1: All right, well, we'll see everyone again tomorrow with a great episode on Slack's S1 and, of course, Uber's terms. Thanks for joining us and see you soon.
0: All right, everybody, thank you for listening and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Picavet, and we will see you all right here next week.